Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Joining me today is Professor Carol Hodgson from the ANZICS Research Centre in Melbourne, Australia. Carol is well known to the intensive care research community for her work in long-term outcomes for intensive care patients and she joins me today to talk about the PREDICT study which she presented at the NUSA uh, meeting of the Australia New Zealand Intensive Care Society's Clinical Trials Group in February. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. Carol, in NUSA, you talked about some of the evidence gaps in the functional recovery from critical illness and what we know about it. What were you referring to? So I think that there are a lot of evidence gaps um, that we don't know about. When you think about uh, recovering from critical illness, we know that there are some things that are important. So we know that there are baseline factors that affect outcome, age and whether a patient's frail, uh, their comorbidities and their pre-existing functional state. And then we know that there are things that we can measure at ICU admission easily, and often that's because they're available in one of the ICU registries. And in the UK, that registry is held by ICNARC. In Australia and New Zealand, that registry is held by ANZICS. But at, at admission to ICU, we have um, severity of illness scores and we have admission diagnoses and we have some of the physiological data that occurs in the first 24 hours, you know, highest CO2, lowest CO2, highest lactate, lowest lactate. Um, and we have a little bit of data about what happens during the ICU stay. Um, for example, duration of mechanical ventilation. Um, you might have whether a patient has been septic or not or whether they've been on ECMO or not. But there's very little granular data that's collected throughout the ICU stay. And there's very little data about interventions that we deliver, um, you know, the timing and the dose and the type of interventions and the progression. And, you know, all of these things can affect a patient's functional recovery. Um, so when we did um, the first project, which I know you're going to ask me about ICU recovery, it was the pilot project really for the PREDICT study. Some of the things that we found that were important that we had missed was that we didn't have a measure of pre-morbid functional status. We asked the patients at six months how they were before they went into ICU. So we asked them that just about their quality of life, but we didn't ask them really about function. Um, so we had a quality of life precursor in survivors only. Um, and so pre I think pre-morbid function is one of the things that's really key and it's particularly hard in the ICU cohort who are admitted as an emergency admission. So you can imagine it would be relatively simple to collect it in the patients who have a planned surgical admission. But in the other, all of the other cases um, of patients who are admitted to ICU, I think collecting pre-morbid function is quite tricky. Um, and our options are to collect it by a proxy where we know that it can be underestimated or overestimated or it can be collected um, retrospectively in survivors, but then you only have it for survivors, you don't have it for non-survivors. Um, so there are problems with both. And then some of the other gaps we have is that we don't really know which of the outcome measures that we're using for function are valid and reliable and responsive in the intensive care population. We often collect functional outcomes, um, particularly in clinical trials, in an unblinded fashion. So a lot of our trials in Australia and New Zealand, for example, use research coordinators who are located at the site who may well know um, in randomised trials, they may perhaps know the randomisation allocation if it was an you know, unblinded randomisation. Um, and I think also we don't have the patient's perception of recovery, so we don't actually know 
with our functional outcome measures what the minimum clinically important difference would be from the patient's perspective. And I think the time of follow-up varies hugely so that um, it's very hard to compare from one study to another. And I think all of this has tried to be addressed really systematically. Um, you know, Dale Needham's done a lot of work and his group from Johns Hopkins on this. They have very much tried to come up with a core outcome set so that we collect similar information in critical care trials using a core outcome set with measurement tools that are recommended at a recommended time frame. Um, but, of course, this takes time to change and we're probably not quite there yet. Carol, how do we currently measure disability in post-ICU patients? Is there a defined way of doing so uh, or an accepted way of doing so in the, uh, in the research community? So I think in the research community, we would follow the core outcome set that's now been published. Um, so it's Nita Minnell in um, the Blue Journal, American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Med. Um, and Dale certainly recommended um, quality of life being measured by EQ5D. And uh, he recommended that um, other outcome measures such as uh, anxiety and depression measured with the HADS and PTSD with IESR. Um, if you were going to measure cognitive function with the mocha blind and um, an alternate uh, quality of life measure would be the SF36. There was interestingly no um, agreement, no consensus around a measurement tool for physical function, which is really difficult. Um, and perhaps, you know, one of the measurement tools that has been used more frequently in the ICU population is the independent activity of daily living. So Mona Hopkins wrote a really lovely systematic review of the, of the um, independent activities of daily living. And, for example, Jacka Washner has used it to report differences in sepsis survivors um, combining ADLs and IADLs, so independent activities of daily living being IADLs and activities of daily living being ADL, um, where Jack used a score of 13, I think, combining ADLs and IADLs and independent walking, um, and that was published in JAMA. So... Unfortunately, um, we have a core outcome set. I think people are starting to use it and um, really are trying hard to make sure that we align our outcome measures. Um, but it, it's been a slow process and a long time coming. So, Carol, the ICU recovery trial that you mentioned earlier was a pilot study in this series of uh, research. Um, what can you tell us about that study? Yeah, so in the ICU recovery study, we looked at 262 patients across five ICUs and we only had ethical approval to follow up um, survivors and to collect data on survivors. So we didn't collect any data on the non-survivors. Obviously, we couldn't follow them up, but we didn't have any hospital data even on the non-survivors. So, you know, we have some limitations from that study. But essentially, we found that... Um, in these 262 patients who survived an ICU stay where they were, the inclusion criteria was people who were ventilated for more than 24 hours and we didn't include the head injured patients. We only included other injuries and medical admissions. Um, and there were 25% of them who were moderately to severely disabled at six months after ICU. Uh, and the disability was highest in the area of physical function like walking. Um, and the predictors of disability from that co cohort, which, as I said, was really a pilot study, um, but in survivors, the predictors of a poor outcome was a history of anxiety and depression, being separated or divorced, and a longer duration of mechanical ventilation. 
Um, but as I said, we didn't have the, the data from non-survivors. We had no measure of physical function prior to ICU. We only had the EQ5D. We didn't have a patient anchor to measure any sort of minimum clinically important difference to know, you know, what was an important change for these patients. We had very minimal data um, during the ICU stay and we only followed them up at six months. So we had no um, insight into their trajectory of recovery. And it was a small cohort, only 262 patients. Um, and the, the, we measured cognitive function using the TICS, the telephone interview for cognitive screening, and we found that, in our opinion, it was non-responsive in the ICU population. Carol, the finding that 25% of survivors of ICU who have been ventilated even for as short a period as 24 hours is frankly horrifying. Do we have any sort of understanding about what the mechanisms that underlie this might be? Um, well, certainly we, from our five ICUs, we found that uh, admission diagnosis in that cohort, um, certainly the trauma patients do worse. So that's probably not surprising. If you've got a major trauma injury, it may take longer, than, it will take longer than six months to recover. So I think that, um, you know, we had not the majority of our patients, but we did have a large number who were, who were trauma survivors. Um, so definitely that was a factor. Um, and as I said, no, we, we do know that if they were anxious or depressed beforehand, they were more likely to be anxious or depressed after ICU. Um, you know, we, as I say, we found, you know, this in multivariate analysis that having a partner to go home to, a supportive partner, and I think that makes sense if you think about it, people who were separated or divorced and, um, you know, they just at six months they weren't doing as well um, trying to get by on their own. Uh, and perhaps the mechanical ventilation days is really just a signal for the amount of time that these people were critically ill and, you know, how long they were in hospital, which, you know, obviously severity of illness didn't come out, but duration of mechanical ventilation days did. So, you know, over time, if people weren't recovering in ICU quickly, then they were less likely to recover quickly afterwards. Carol, you're in Noosa to talk about the PREDICT study. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was run? Yeah, we were really lucky. We we won an NHMRC translational grant, um, so a National Health and Medical Research Council grant, to do this study, which was fantastic because for the first time we actually had some decent funding to follow up patients um, from ICU. So we decided that we wanted to address the shortcomings of the pilot study. Um, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I liked the tools that we were using and, and that we had included everything really that had been recommended in the core outcome set. And we had included a, a few additional tools that we were interested in as well. For example, um, the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule, um, version two and the 12 level. And we like that in particular because you transcribe the scores into a percent and it means that you can analyse them as a continuous variable, which just gives you a little bit of additional strength in your statistical analysis um, of the outcome measure. Um, it's, I think that's nicer uh, than some of the other outcome measures, which are, you know, not continuous and, and therefore have to be analysed um, using different methods. But we predict we included six sites and 889 patients were included. So we just have a much larger cohort and we were we applied for ethical approval to include patients who didn't survive and we have data on people who didn't respond so that we can compare 
non-responders to responders and look at why that they might be different. As I said, we were really interested in the trajectory of recovery. So we've um, we've looked at people, we've followed them up at both three and six months. We included um, the HUDAS score at baseline. So only again in survivors, we retrospectively asked them what their functional state was prior to coming into ICU. So we have baseline function in survivors. Um, and yeah, just this larger cohort that we're able to assess to look at, you know, predictors of a good outcome where a good outcome is no longer just survival, it's disability-free survival. Carol, can you paint a picture for us of what a, a survivor of critical illness at six months looks like? No, I can't, Todd. Um, it's a great question, but it's so variable. We've got in our results, so we're just writing the paper. Um, as I said to you when we're offline, we've just started to write the paper and we've put it together. And one of the um, diagrams that I particularly like um, is a plot which shows you the flow of patients um, before ICU at three months and at six months. And it's called an alluvial plot. And what's really clear is that patients don't follow a trend. There's no, you know, essentially, you know, there's a lot of patients who have moderate to severe disability before they come into ICU and some of them get better and some of them get a lot worse and some of them stay about the same. Um, But you could equally say that of patients who had no disability before they came into ICU, some of them get better, some of them stay the same um, and some of them get a lot worse. Um, So, you know, it's, it's really interesting just looking at the alluvial plot and going, wow, you know, the trajectory of recovery is really complex. You can talk about, you know, some summary data, but it doesn't really tell you the story of individual recovery, which is what you're asking me for. Um, so that individual recovery, I think, is fascinating. Um, and there's going to be, you know, predictors within people, you know, I think that are really important. And We've touched on this before, but, you know, we have this really lovely diagram in our ICU recovery paper in intensive care medicine where we looked at, you know, the HUDAS and and the HUDAS in a figure form. But what we really discussed around that is that there's things like resilience and adaptation and the environment, which are big factors in whether somebody actually improves or not. And, you know, quality of life is a patient's perception. So there's a whole lot of factors that affect their ability to um, function, but how they perceive their level of functioning, which is really their quality of life, might be affected even by more things like, you know, whether you have a spouse to go home to and, and the environment, a supportive environment, what's considered any sort of support around your environment, or even just, you know, somebody's ability to be resilient um, and somebody's perception of whether they can adapt to it or not. You know, some people just won't accept their disabilities and other people will just get on with it, have an attitude of, oh, I've just got to get on with it. So I don't. I, I wish I could describe recovery for you. I could. I could definitely talk to you about, you know, um, individual patients that I know. Um, some of them have become friends. We, we have patients who sit on our management committees um, as a consumer rep, which is fantastic. And you know, they all have their own story. But I can assure you that they each have a different story. That obviously makes prediction of outcomes for individual patients quite difficult. Um, From the data that you've got available to you, are you able to identify who's most at risk of disability uh, in the follow-up period? 
Yeah. So as I said, we for the for the predict study, we only um, followed people up to three and six months. So I think that some of the work that's been done following patients up to two years and five years is really important because the prediction of recovery at six months is just about the six-month time period. Um, and I can tell you that I think if you're admitted to hospital with sepsis or if you're admitted to hospital with trauma, you're at much higher risk of still being disabled at six months than other people. But that doesn't necessarily mean, for example, in the trauma cohort that they'll still be disabled at one year or two years or five years. That might be a cohort who really do just take a longer period of time to recover rather than staying unwell. But the reason that I think it's important to be able to say to somebody who's had major trauma, look, we know that you know, you've know you got a high risk of still being disabled at six months is so that they and their family can plan for the next six months. You know, you want people to be armed when they're discharged from hospital with an understanding that you're not going to be better in one month. That's just not how this is going to look for you. We, we, you're going to need to think about conting, contingencies around work and income and rehabilitation and putting structures around childcare or whatever it might be that allows people to just focus on recovery for, for a prolonged period of time rather than worrying about other things in their lives that matter and are important but obviously need to be sorted out somehow you know, without their support. Carol, um, are you able to speculate on where you think the opportunities to intervene in the course might be, um, where we might be able to step in and influence the quality of outcome, uh, sorry, quality of life that survivors of ICU um, report? So I think that our main findings are that you're much more likely to have um, a good recovery if you've if you're younger, if you're less frail, if you've got lower severity of illness at admission. Those things you can't change. So you know, of course, that's not rocket science either. <laughs> that if you're younger and fitter and less frail, and you know that you're not quite as severely unwell as you come in, that you're more likely to do well. So those those are the things that you know we're not going to have any influence on, but. Perhaps if people are frail, then we should be spending more time focusing on early rehabilitation with them and interventions where we sort of set up a um, transitions of care that are really important for them to allow them the best possible recovery. Because I wonder if some of the things that we're not doing at the moment are really focusing on the patients who are at risk. So again, if you think of, you know, I said this, the, the groups of patients with sepsis or with major trauma, perhaps there are groups of patients that we can really focus on where we need additional um, therapy and interventions to help them along with their recovery. And I guess, you know, looking at some of our data, we know that um, these patients, you know, they're not just physically disabled. You know, we found that there were nearly 40% of them that had impaired cognitive scores at six months and, you know, nearly a quarter of them were anxious um, at six months. So there's other interventions that we might be able to help with that that would assist in their recovery. And what those are, we don't know yet. But, you know, as you know, I'm leading a trial of early mobilisation. I certainly think that physical functioning comes out time and again as one of the most important factors. And it may well be that if you can assist somebody with their physical function, that they're less anxious and that, you know, their ability to, you know, 
who knows about cognition. I'm certainly not a cognitive expert, but it is plausible that if you could, you know, assist people with their physical recovery, that their cognitive recovery might follow with it. Um, so, you know, perhaps early mobilisation is something that's really positive and we're not going to know that for a few years. The phase three trials are still in progress and recruiting patients. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people have their hopes pinned on a couple of the, the large early mobilisation trials. And then there seems like a combination of early mobilisation and nutrition um, or cognitive therapies um, that we've seen previously and, and, you know, any of those may be important in terms of early interventions. But I do think that the earlier we can intervene with our patients, the more likely we are to have a good outcome rather than certainly leaving it until they're discharged from ICU or, or worse, still discharged from hospital, which means that they're sort of weeks down the track from the initial um, admitting problem. Carol, on a side note, you're obviously associated with several research projects. Um, the COVID-19 outbreak has wreaked havoc with many parts of the industry, but just tell us briefly how it's impacted on research programs like yours. Yeah, sure. So, um, Todd, as you know, I'm Deputy Director at the Intensive Care Research Centre at Monash University, and I have a co-joint appointment at Alfred Hospital. So, um, the Alfred has been the major COVID admitting hospital for the state of Victoria in Australia and Monash University has led, um, not me, but Andrew Udy, one of my colleagues, and Aidan Burrell have led the Sprint Sari, the, um, the Australian-New Zealand arm of the point prevalence data collected around COVID. So the first thing I would say is that, of course, all of our efforts and our um, research intense time was put towards trying to um, assist with COVID projects. Um, we also from the ANZIC-RC um, are running the REMAP-CAP trial. So uh, it was unfortunate that a lot of our studies got halted. So you can imagine particularly our early mobilisation intervention where it's um, it's a complex intervention. It requires a lot of staff and staff are in very close contact with patients. So that would be a high-risk intervention during a pandemic. Um, so most sites across Australia, in fact, I think all sites across Australia ceased enrolment and internationally, I might add, it wasn't just Australia, all sites ceased enrolment for, for a period of time. Um, and our, our project managers across those projects were then actually um, asked to work with our COVID-19 projects. So they were seconded to remap CAP or Sprint Sari to work to help those teams that became incredibly busy and really needed all hands on deck to get sites up and running and to have site startups and to um, make sure that our, all of our um, research tools, our data dictionaries, the CRF is working seamlessly. So, it's, you know, it's been a very well-oiled machine. I've been incredibly proud of our team. Everybody has um, worked outside of the box. Um, we've all tried to keep our own projects ticking over as best we can while we've supported some very busy programs of research in COVID-19. And it's been, um, you know, both frustrating for our normal projects, but also a great challenge to get some of the COVID-19 data up and running and, and to supply that back to the sites as quickly as possible and to really feel like we're contributing to allowing Australian clinicians to have some data to try and, uh, you know, work to save patients during the pandemic. Carol, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure as always chatting to you and all the best as uh, your projects um, start to unfold again as the COVID outbreak um, starts to finally clear. Thanks for your time, Todd. Always a pleasure.
Thanks for joining me on the podcast. For more interviews just like this, visit our website at oslacommunity.com.